Good morning. It's good to be back with you all again this morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew 25. We'll be reading a, a similar text this morning than was read from, Luke, uh, from the Luke passage this morning. Makes the same point. Our text this morning is Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, the familiar story of the parable of the talents. This is God's word. Give heed to it this morning. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and, and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward and bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reaped where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Note the question mark there at the end of that. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God bless the reading, hearing, and preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask by the grace of the Holy Spirit that you would help us receive this stern and sober warning set before us today by the Lord Jesus in this parable of the talents. Help us to take account of our own hearts. See if our love and affection for the Lord Jesus Christ is real and to receive and act upon the message of this, your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think you can see there that there are there are three great parables in Matthew 25, also over in Luke. 
they all make very similar points. Uh, two Sundays ago when I was here, we, we studied the parable of the ten virgins. Today we take a look at the parable of the talents, and this last one, the parable of the sheep and the goats, will have to be left for another time, next time I come over. Now, all of these parables occur at the very end of Matthew in the context of Jesus teaching about the end of the age. He's teaching here about his second coming. Now, Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he reminds his disciples that one day he's going to return, not as Savior. He's going to return as judge of all men, and that all who are wise should prepare now to meet him then in that judgment. So the Lord Jesus is telling us these things, not just to tickle our fancy or to give us some interesting information about the future. Instead, he's telling us these things for very practical purposes. He wants these truths to impact us now, the way we're living now. He wants us to look into our own hearts to see if we're prepared for the day of accounting, that great day which will come for all of us when Christ comes back again. What does it mean to be a Christian? You know, what does a Christian look like? What does he do? What kinds of, of attitudes does he or she have? You know, see, these are the sorts of questions that Jesus is pressing home to his disciples in this parable of the talents. Now, he's preaching this message to his own disciples, but he's talking to them about people who appear to be servants of the king, but who don't live as if they're servants of the king. And he's giving them a tremendous warning against those who profess to be his followers, but in their lives totally neglect to live as if they were his followers. Well, as you look at this text, you can see that there are three parts to this story. Three parts to this parable. In verses 14 and 15, you see a description of the trust that this master gave to his servants before he went away on a long journey. Then if you look at verses 16 through 18, you see an account of what each one of these servants did with this trust that had been given to them. And then finally in verses 19 through 30, you see the master return to settle his accounts with these servants. And you see how two of them were rewarded and one of them was condemned and punished. So let's take a look at that. Let's look first at the description of this master's trust in verses 14 and 15. I think the first thing we see here is this sum or weight of money or goods which this master gave to each of these three servants. And by doing that, I think Jesus is reminding us that he has furnished all of his people with personal resources for the sake of building up his kingdom. Every one of us has things in trust from God, which he expects us to use for the building up of his kingdom, and by which he will take an account at the very end. 
Now, I'm told in, in Jesus' day, wealthy masters often went on long journeys. Uh, and when they did, they, they typically would appoint people in their business to control their money and their assets while they were away, and also to invest those assets and that money. Now, sometimes these were free men who were employed by the master. Sometimes they were actually servants or slaves that he owned. Now, in this case, Jesus makes it clear that they are servants of this master, and their job would be to invest his money. Now, that was a common practice, and so the story that Jesus is telling would have been familiar to everyone in his audience. Now, remember, this is, this is the usual way that Jesus taught. He would show what was happening in real life by, by telling a simple story, using a familiar setting that people would readily understand, both believers and non-believers. And he would use that story to teach a new lesson, to teach a moral truth or a spiritual truth. And, that, and that's what he's doing here. These stories are called parables. Well, let me also note that this word talents, I think, is a little confusing. We normally think of talents as, I don't know, native abilities or, or native skills that a person has. We say that someone is a talented musician. That person is a talented artist. But these native abilities are not what Jesus is speaking of here. These talents are rather something that has been entrusted by a master to be used for his benefit. They were a sum of, of money or goods, a weight of measure of money or goods that were to be used by the servants to advance the interests of the master while he was away. Now certainly, I think the servants would get a reward for their faithfulness, it would be to their benefit to enlarge the financial wealth of the household. But ultimately, ultimately, the agenda for the use of these talents is for expanding the master's kingdom. So while he's away, the servants are to use this trust, the trust they have been given, not primarily for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the master. And I think it's important for us to see that right up front if we're going to understand this, this parable. Now, there are a number of other things I want you to note here in verses 14 and 15. First, Jesus goes out of his way to say that the master gave this weight of money or goods, gave his property to his own servants. Look at verse 14. It says that as the master was about to go on a journey, he called his servants. Now, Jesus is stressing here that the people to whom the master gave the trust already belonged to him, or apparently they belonged to him. They were his servants. Also notice in verse 14 that the money or the, or the goods which the, the master gave, also belonged to him. He says that he entrusted to them his property. Now, are you getting the picture here? This is a picture 
of the lordship of God over his people. We not only belong to him, but all the resources he has given to us also belong to him. But that's not all. Now, in verse 15, we see that the amount of resources that the master entrusted to these servants was enormous. You know, we're told here that the master gave talents. And I don't know what your Bible says. The note in my Bible says that a talent was worth about 20 years of wages for a common day laborer. Think of that. You know, that's, that's almost a lifetime of labor or a lifetime uh, for, a, for a common laborer. You know, one of these men was given five talents. So that's about a hundred years of wages for a laborer. One was given two talents. One was given one talent. The point is, this is not chump change. This is a big-time trust. And it should remind us of the wealth of the master. And in another place, Jesus has alluded to the fact that the Lord of our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The point being that God has enormous resources, which he lavishly gives to his own. Well, the story continues. In verse 15, we note that the distribution of these talents, this sum of money, was not arbitrary. It was done according to the ability of each servant. You know, it's, it's almost like the master was sort of, he, he said to himself, you know, this servant here has a real gift for investment. So I'm going to give, invest more with him. And this other servant, well, he's done okay. I'm going to give him two talents to invest. And this servant, well, he's still learning. He's, he's basically an apprentice. And I'm going to just give him one talent to invest. And then we're told finally that he packed his bags and he went away. And verse 19 says he was gone a long time, which I don't know, may be another hint at the delay of Jesus coming back. Jesus wants his disciples to remember that he's not going to be coming back in a couple of days. Although he might, he might do that. He might come back today. But it could be a long time before he comes back. So I think the main point in these opening verses of the parable is that Christ has entrusted his church with, with gifts, enormous gifts. And those gifts are to be used for his glory. They are to be used for the sake of his kingdom. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to him. We're his servants. And what we own doesn't belong to us either. It belongs to him. All that he has given us is so that we might glorify him and that we might do good to our neighbor. I think that's the main teaching here in these opening couple of verses of the parable. Well, moving on. Now Jesus tells us in the next verses, verses 16 through 18, what happened. He gives us a brief account of how each servant managed the trust. And I think this should remind us, this is a good reminder, 
that Jesus is very interested in how you and I live our lives. You know, that's an important insight because sometimes we think, uh, you know, that the only thing that matters in our relationship with Christ is that, I don't know, we once walked the aisle, we made a decision for him, or that we're, we've prayed a prayer, we've signed a card. But the Lord Jesus is here taking stock of the lives of people who claim to be servants of his household. And so I think that reminds us that he is keenly interested in how we live and how we manage the trust that he has given to us. Well, as we return to the story, two things happen. Two of the servants gained a 100% return on their investment. They doubled what had been given to them, while the third servant simply buried what the master had entrusted to him. Now, I think we can certainly see by the end of verse 18 that that wasn't a very good thing to do. You know, we're told that this third servant dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. And once again, it's emphasized that this is money that belonged to his master. Yet he put it in a hole. So here are three servants, but two basic results. Two were able to double their master's trust, while one literally buried it. Now, we have to see this. Jesus is not drawing attention to the enormous return that the first two servants gained, as if to indicate that if you work really hard, and you do lots of good things, that you're a real Christian, that you're a true Christian. He isn't doing that at all here. The point of this parable is to focus on the servant who did nothing. We've got to understand that, or we're going to totally miss the teaching of this parable. Jesus is not telling this story so that you will believe in salvation by works. He's telling us the story to warn against the Christianity which professes to be genuine with the lips, but which is not reflected with the life. The focus of this parable has to be on the servant who did nothing. You know, the faithfulness and the diligence of the first two servants, I think, is simply an expression of their love and their loyalty to the master. Did you notice what they did? as soon as the master gave them the money? The text says that they took the money, and what? They went at once and invested it. They didn't do it grudgingly. It wasn't drudgery for them. They were excited about the opportunity to invest the master's money. They were grateful for this tremendous privilege and responsibility that had been given to them, and they were anxious to get on with it. You know, the other servant, with his laziness and his indolence in taking care of the money, I think is a reflection of his lack of love, his lack of loyalty for his master. He had no sense of obligation to his master, and so he simply buries the trust given to him. You know, one of the things that Jesus reminds us of here and of which the apostles constantly remind us of throughout the New Testament, 
is that the gifts of the Spirit are for the fruits of the Spirit. God gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit that we might bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is reminding us here that the reason God gives us resources is not to keep them to ourselves, but to invest them in the lives of others. We are to bear fruit. Jesus sets this story before us to remind us that there are many so-called Christians who profess to be believers with their lips, but their lives indicate that they don't really care about the Lord Jesus Christ. They view Christianity as a duty, as drudgery. They view a personal relationship with him as extraneous. His kingdom and fellowship with him are rarely on their minds. They can't wait to get out of the sanctuary, to get on with something more important. We know that there are many people who profess Christ, but whose lives are totally devoid of him. And Jesus is speaking to us about this in this passage. And now we see the verdict in verses 19 through 30. Here we see the respective accounts of these three servants and how the master rewarded two and he punished the third. This passage reminds us that Christ's final judgment and reward is going to be in accordance with our faithfulness. Faithfulness and the lack of faithfulness is on display here in this story. We see first the reward of the servant who had been given five talents. Then the reward of the servant who had been given two. Then the condemnation of the servant who had been given one talent. I think we start to see a pattern here in verses 19 through 21. The first servant, who had been given five talents, he comes forward and he's clearly anticipating his master's return. And when the master calls for a report, he happily and enthusiastically comes forward and he says, Master, I took your five talents and I gained five talents more. He gives it with joy to the master. And the master says, well done. You've done well. Enter into my joy and participate in the benefits of my kingdom. Clearly, this first servant is enthusiastic about the relationship with his master. Note that the master remains the master. The servants remain servants. But now the master is shown to be one who treats his servants with love and benevolence, and the servant loves the idea. He loves the idea of gaining interest for his master. Then the second servant comes. He's been given two talents. He also reports to his master happily, Master, you gave me two talents, and I earned you two more. Let me just pause here and, and make a quick personal observation. I don't know about you, but I am so thankful for that second servant. Because the Lord, he doesn't call all of us to earn five talents for him. He doesn't give us all five talents. To some of us, he gives less. He only expects us to wisely use what he gives us. He gives us certain abilities 
gives us certain resources. And he says to be faithful with what I've given you. You know, again, this, this is not a story about earning your salvation. To both of these faithful servants, he gives a blessing. It's a beautiful blessing. Look at the end of verses 21 and 23. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Note that the master gives the identical blessing to both of these servants, regardless of each one's return on investment. You know, that should be a comfort to us. We don't have to, we don't have to be everything to all people. We've been given certain godly resources. And the lesson here is that we are responsible to be faithful and wisely use these resources that God gives us. But the condemnation of the third servant in verses 24 through 30 is entirely different. It's totally different from these first two reports. The third servant's report, it's both an excuse and it's an accusation. First, he, he excuses his unfaithfulness by saying he was afraid of his master. He says in verses 24 and 25, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. And I was afraid. Now, I want you to note that this fear of his master, it was not in the biblical sense of the fear of God. It was not in the biblical sense of the awe of God, trembling before the mighty God of heaven and earth. This is a servile fear, which thinks ill of God, which thinks that God is unjust and unfair, and that God treats us in a biased way. This man fears his master, I think, in that sense. He's afraid of him. Then we're told that he disclaims any further responsibility for the talent. What does he do? He hands it over to the master. And he says here, hey, it's your problem now. You take it back. You gave it to me in the first place. It's your problem now. But he doesn't even stop there. He goes on. He's even more insulting. He excuses his unfaithfulness by actually accusing his master. He says here that he's a hard man. And that he knows he's the sort of man who, who has a habit of making profits without even investing in the first place. Now, the master takes issue with that accusation. You can see it in verses 26 and 27, where he says to the servant, let me just paraphrase what he says here. He says, basically, is that your assessment of my character? And again, note the question mark at the end of verse 26. That I really reap where I haven't sowed or, and gather where I scattered no seed. Is that really what you think of me? Is that really how you see me? Now, I vehemently disagree with your assessment. It's all wrong. But if it were true, if I really were that sort of hard man, I think I would have acted differently than you did. If I were such a hard man, I think I would have at least put that money in the bank or bought a CD or something to make me some interest instead of just burying it in the ground. 
You know, I think you can see the point. The point about the third servant is that he did nothing. Now, here was the servant of the household. He had been entrusted with gifts from God. And what did he do with them? He didn't invest them as he was instructed to do. He stuffed them. He buried them. He did nothing with them. You know, the point is not that this servant was a murderer or that he was an adulterer or had committed some other great crime. In fact, this servant wasn't even the prodigal son. He hadn't even wasted the father's money. He simply did nothing. You see, he claimed to be part of the household of God. But you see, his life didn't reflect the life of God in his soul. And so Jesus says that he's condemned by the master. You know, the master did not reward the other two servants. He didn't reward them or award them salvation because they had worked. It never occurred, it never entered into their minds that what they earned was going to determine whether they were saved or not. They simply worked happily for a generous master. But this one servant who had a view of God that is hard, who thinks that God is unfair and unjust and reaps where he does not sow, that man is condemned, not because of what he did, but because of what he didn't do. I want to ask you a question today because I think it's the question that Jesus is asking all of us. You know, in the hard circumstances of life which we all experience, do those circumstances prove out for you that you truly trust in God and that you're concerned for his kingdom? Oftentimes, uh, I think we learn how much we really care about God when things start to go south on us. You know, I've had friends, and so have you, who were, who were professing Christians who came upon tragedies in their lives, and those tragedies made them bitter people. It caused them to see God as hard and unfair and unjust. And as a result, some fell away from their Christian profession. You know, on the other hand, I've had friends, and so have you, who in the very midst of trials, even in spite of these trials, have shown that their concern for faithfulness for the Lord is at the very heart of who they are. I don't know what trials and tribulations and tragedies most of you are experiencing in your circumstances of life today. I don't know that. But I do know that in the midst of any crisis or tragedy or trial, you could become bitter toward God. You could think of God as hard. He doesn't really care for his people. But you also could, as a faithful servant, determine that you're going to use even some horrendous event, whatever it may be, to bear witness to the gospel because your hearts are with the master and with his kingdom, because you know that he always does good. You see, that's the question this morning. How do you treat the possessions that the Lord has given you? What kind of servant are you? Do you see this trust as something to be used for ministry to others, 
Do you see the wealth entrusted to you as something that you would use for the furtherance of God's kingdom and the church and elsewhere, regardless of your circumstances? Is that the way you see this trust? You know, all of us, by what we do and what we don't do, manifest whether we have a real love and loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this parable is about a man who shows that he really has no loyalty to Christ by the way he lives, and especially by what he doesn't do. You know, Bishop J.C. Ryle says this. He says, let us leave this parable with a solemn determination by God's grace never to be content with the profession of Christianity without practice. Let us not only talk about religion, but act. Let us not only feel the importance of saving faith in Christ, but do something too. We're not told, again, that the unprofitable servant was a murderer or a thief or even a waster of his Lord's money, but he did nothing, and that was his ruin. Now, as Ryle says, let us beware of a do-nothing Christianity because a Christianity like that does not come from the Spirit of God. Let us with our lives as well as our lips express our loving, joyful loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, Oh, Lord, we ask that at the day of your coming, whenever it is, that we would be found ready because we love you now and we love your people now and we manifested your love to all those who are far off. For Jesus' sake, amen.